Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Now, that is one of the most significant statements in the entire Old Testament. God will provide for himself the lamb. My friends, that is what faith looks like in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, faith is about looking forward to what God will provide. In the New Testament, faith is about looking back toward what God did provide. But in both cases, one knowingly and one unknowingly, the object of faith is Jesus Christ. The direction of faith changed forever when John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Up until that point, faith was forward. From that point on, faith is backwards. Right At that moment, the direction changed. But the object of faith never has and never does. Have you ever thought about that? Old Testament and New, people are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Old Testament and New, people are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. That is good news. And that's a great example of what I've been enjoying most about our walk through the book of Genesis. It's wonderful to see how the Old and New Testaments go together and how they tell a unified story of redemption that is ours through Jesus. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you to Genesis chapter 22. This is beyond a doubt one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Now, I know that I've said that before, but in truth, I think if you were going to make a list of the top 10 most important chapters in the Bible, then Genesis 1, 3, 15, 17, and 22 would all deserve consideration for that list. This is an important book of the Bible, and this is an important chapter in that book. So, without further ado, hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Now, you could do an entire podcast on this verse. You could write a book on this verse. What in the world does it mean to say that God tested Abraham? Didn't God already know Abraham's heart? Didn't he already accept Abraham's faith and credit it to him as righteousness? Wasn't Abraham already saved? Hasn't the Apostle Paul built his entire theology around Genesis 15, 6, which says he, Abraham, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness? So Abraham's already saved. What is God doing here testing Abraham's faith? That's a good question. And to answer that question, we have to think carefully about what faith is and how faith manifests. In terms of what faith is, we've seen enough in the story to answer that. Faith is believing in the word and promise of God despite delay, despite difficulty, and even despite doubt. Faith is believing that God exists, believing what God says, and trusting in and waiting for what God has said he will do. So that's what faith is. But here in chapter 22, we are learning how faith manifests. Listen to what the apostle to the Hebrews says in the New Testament. He says in chapter 11, verse 17, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. 
So according to Hebrews, it was the pre-existing faith of Abraham that allowed him to offer up Isaac, meaning it was because he believed in God. It was because he believed that God could do the impossible. It was because he trusted God to do things that he didn't understand that he offered up Isaac on the altar. Listen to what the Apostle James says in James chapter 2. To get the full effect, you have to read from verses 19 to 24. James says this, You believe that God is one. Well, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So here, James is eager to prove that mere intellectual agreement with the essential facts of faith is not the same as actually having faith. People can believe in God, James says. Even the demons believe in God and shudder. But that's not faith. Abraham showed his faith, brought his faith to full manifestation and and full completion, you might say, through works of faith. And he was called a friend of God. Now, this is why both Luther and Calvin say that while we are saved by faith alone, the faith that saves us is never alone. Both Luther and Calvin had very similar, though we think unrelated, sayings to that effect, right? They're both saying that, yes, we're saved by faith, but faith, if it's real, always flowers, completes itself, use your term, in works of faith. That is why chapter 22 is in your Bible. God wants you to understand that Abraham's faith was no mere intellectual assent. Okay? Abraham is far more than the first monotheist. Abraham was a completely devoted follower of the Lord. That is faith. And here we see it on full and glorious display. Now, I use the word glorious because the purpose of this display is ultimately to glorify God. You see, in a sense, Genesis chapter 22 is no different than the entire book of Job. There, God tests Job, another man of faith. God tests him through the sub-agency of Satan, but the entire exchange is initiated by God. God tests Job because he is a man of faith, and he knows that his faith will shine through and prove the lie of the devil. The devil had said that Job loved his family and his money more than God. God tested Job to show that wasn't so. You see, the tests of God are not to break us or to make us. They don't make us saved, and they aren't intended to steal away our faith. The tests of God are intended to display our faith and to grow our faith and to give him glory and to bring us blessing. Thanks be to God. We jump back into the text at verse 2. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering 
on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, I mentioned a minute ago that the devil had suggested that Job loved things more than God, things like family and money. And of course, those are the most common idols that people cherish in the days of the Bible, just as much as in our day. That's why Jesus says in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You see, God is no different in Genesis chapter 22 than he is in Luke 14. Old Testament and New Testament, God has the right to your ultimate affection and loyalty because he's God. He will be the center or you will be outside. That is the deal. And he will test and probe by a variety of means to see if you love anything more than him. Now, I think you need to be careful with that truth. I, I think that there are implications, significant implications to that truth. I will tell you this. I, I get nervous sometimes when I see how some people present their affections through social media. If, if you post a picture of your child and say, this is my everything, or she is my whole life, do you not invite a test from God? Do you not summon a potentially dangerous inquiry? Is it not likely that if God wanted to know the order of affections in Abraham's heart, that he might wish to know that about his people still today? God is a jealous God, not just in the Old Testament. Luke 14, 26 is saying the exact same thing on that score. God has not changed. So believers, be wise and be certain in your allegiances. Verse 3 goes on to say, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you. Now, notice there that Abraham says, I and the boy will go and come again to you. The author of Hebrews understands that as a statement of faith. Hebrews eleven nineteen says, He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So the author of Hebrews says that Abraham didn't know exactly how Isaac would come down from the mountain. He didn't know whether he would die and rise again. He just knew that he would come down that mountain because God had promised that the line of blessing would run through Isaac. Verse 6 says, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, 
God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Now, that is one of the most significant statements in the entire Old Testament. God will provide for himself the lamb. My friends, that is what faith looks like in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, faith is about looking forward to what God will provide. In the New Testament, faith is about looking back toward what God did provide. But in both cases, one knowingly and one unknowingly, the object of faith is Jesus Christ. The direction of faith changed forever when John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Up until that point, faith was forward. From that point on, faith is backwards. Right At that moment, the direction changed. But the object of faith never has and never does. Have you ever thought about that? Old Testament and New. People are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Verse 9 says, When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. (laughs) Now, there is so much going on here, and we are running out of time, but we can't leave without noticing that phrase, for now I know, ata yadati. What does that mean? Right? I mean, didn't God already know? Doesn't God know everything all the time, everywhere? And of course, the answer to that is yes. So the question again, what does this mean? For now I know. Now you remember back in Genesis 19, we said that this word yada means intimate knowledge. It is very often associated with uh, sexuality, with a husband knowing his wife. But here it has a relational sense. You have to pay attention to the context to know which is which. Here we see that God wants to have intimate, you could even say exploratory knowledge of his chosen people. He explores and delights in our faith. Let that settle on you. God explores us through the language of challenge and response. Right? Understand that. Wrestle with those implications. We are constantly communicating with God through this language of challenge and response. God is knowing us. He is exploring us. His tests are not to destroy us or break us. They are to know us and to grow us and most of all, to enjoy us. There is a day's worth of thinking and meditating on that truth alone. 
Amen. And I agree. So let's do that. Pastor Paul, help us meditate on this truth that God is communicating with us through the language of challenge and response. He is exploring us and probing us, as you say. That sounds pretty intimate and pretty amazing. Unpack that a bit more for us. Yeah, it is amazing to think that the God of the universe wants to know us and is committed to growing us is really kind of breathtaking. And we meet this reality for the first time here in Genesis 22, but it is a common and recurring theme over the course of the Bible. It shows up again in the next book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. Right about in the middle of that book, there's a fabulous little story about God marching the people through the wilderness of sin. That's sin as in Sinai, not sin as in sinful. He's marching them down through this wilderness towards Mount Sinai. One day he tells them to set out from the waterhole they'd camped at, and he marches them all day long through the heat and through the desert. But at the end of the day, they arrive at the next oasis that is supposed to have water, but it does not. The wells are all dry. We aren't told why. We're just told that there was no water anywhere. And as you can imagine, the people aren't happy when you're expecting a trial to be over and then all of a sudden it is extended. People get frustrated. We're going through that right now exactly in the province of Ontario. A month ago, people were talking about the light at the end of the tunnel and vaccines are coming and this is all going to be over soon. And now we're on lockdown again. We expected relief and it didn't come. That's the situation God has designed in the story in Exodus. They come to the watering hole and there is no water. They go to bed thirsty. Then God wakes them up the next day and sends them out again. They begin to walk and they are nearing the very end of their endurance. And of course, you know what happens. They begin to grumble and to complain. They're even getting ready to kill Moses. Tired people are irrational and angry and they turn on their leaders. Anyone feeling the relevance of that? But then you know how the story goes. God tells them to press on to Horeb, the foothills of Mount Sinai, and there God miraculously brings water from the rock. So it was all a test. It was like a midterm exam. God just wanted to see where they were at. He had no intention of killing them in the desert. He just wanted to know and to measure their hearts under trial. That is the God of the Bible. And that is why the climax of our story in Genesis 22 comes when God says, stop, Abraham, for now I know. It was just a test. God was never going to let Abraham kill Isaac just like he was never going to kill his own people in the desert in the book of Exodus. It was a test. It was a trial. It was an exam. God is building faith. He is pruning and probing and preparing. J. Alec Montier says about the story in Exodus, there is no such thing as an untried faith. If you want to be in relationship with God, then you better prepare yourself for these sorts of experiences. You are in relationship with the Lord, and he makes that which he loves. Yeah, I love that. God makes what he loves. That's a good truth right there once you get used to it. Let's finish the story now as we jump back into the text at verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because 
you have obeyed my voice. Now, let's just notice once again that the plan never changes. The plan has always been to release blessings through human obedience. And so here, in response to this obedience, is like a big chunk of blessings has dropped down, right? A, bl- a chunk of assurances around these blessings. God responds to human obedience. That's just something we should notice, right? And we should see here God's delight in, a, in confirming his promise right? God doubles down here. God swears by himself, not for his benefit. Obviously, he was not wavering. This is for Abraham's benefit. God responds to Abraham's obedience with this outpouring of of blessing and assurance. God encourages and assures us, his people, on the other side of a challenge. That's good to know. I imagine that's very helpful for anyone who is right now working their way through one of these challenges. Verse 19, So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Buz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reuma, bore Teba, Gehem, Tehash, and Mecha. Now, some of these people will become important in future chapters, particularly those chapters dealing with Isaac and Rebekah. But that's a story for another day. For now, we have learned that God delights to know his people and that he explores their faith through the language of challenge and response. We have learned that faith manifests in proving action and works, and we have learned that God himself will provide the lamb. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, before we leave this story, I want to ask you a question about the different ways that this story is used in the New Testament. You referred to the Apostle Paul's use of this story, and and really the whole Abrahamic narrative. His main takeaway was the faith of Abraham. Romans 3 says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But the Apostle James puts more emphasis on the act of Abraham in offering up Isaac. James 2, 21 and 23 says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God, close quote. So are Paul and James reading the story differently, or am I just missing something? No, I don't think you're missing anything. I I think they're just making different points out of the same story. There is no doubt that Abraham could only do what he did because he believed. Hebrews 11, 17 says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And then in verse 19, it says that he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Close quote. So Abraham could only obey God because he has faith in God. He knew that God would keep his promise, and therefore he reasoned that God would raise Isaac from the dead. His faith came first, and it empowered his obedience. That's the point Paul is making in Romans 4. 
But James's point is that his action, his obedience proved or showed his faith. That's not the opposite of what Paul is saying. Not even close. It is the same truth from the other side of the event. Paul is saying faith had to be there for Abraham to do what he did. James is saying we know that faith was there because he did what he did. They made their point in different ways because they were pushing back on different problems. Paul wanted people to understand that we are saved by faith, not by works. But James wanted people to know that the faith that saves us is always manifested in proving works. In a sense, they're both saying what Machir was saying, or probably better, Machir is saying what they are saying. There is no such thing as an untried faith. Tests are going to come. They're going to come because God ordains them, not to destroy you, but to refine your faith, grow your faith, and to display your faith. These tests then are for your good and for his glory always. Thanks be to God. Amen. That's really helpful. I know we're going to hear more about that in the weeks and the episodes to come as well. As always, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.